Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 215th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Sean Tidlaska. Sean is the founder of Ballast Point Financial Planning, an independent RA based in the San Francisco Bay Area that services over 100 high-income young professionals. What's unique about Sean, though, is the way he's built his advisory firm with a blended model of a minimum of $5,000 annual retainer fee paid monthly plus an additional fee of 10 basis points of net worth above $2 million to adjust his pricing upwards for his affluent and most complex clients. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Sean structures his services to charge a $5,000 annual retainer fee for young professional clients who may have portfolios simply outsourced to Betterment, why the household's balance sheet cash flow and credit score forms the basis of his planning process with clients, the annual service calendar he built on a rotating two-year cycle to actually show clients what he'll be doing for them on an ongoing basis, and the results thus far tracking system that Sean put in place to actually calculate that he was generating more than $437 a month of average value for his ongoing clients and giving him the confidence to raise his advisory fee minimums. We also talk about how Sean has managed to build so quickly to 117 ongoing clients in under five years the find an advisor websites that Sean got himself listed on to get some initial clients early on, how clients who took it upon themselves to leave Sean's reviews on Yelp ended up driving significant growth for the firm, and why Sean recently decided to take out a $150,000 SBA loan to accelerate hiring more team members, even as the pandemic did cause an uptick in his client attrition. And be certain to listen to the end where Sean shares the challenge of working with younger clients who graduate from using his services once they build their own financial foundation, why the retainer fee model with younger clients can achieve 90 plus percent retention rates, but may still struggle to reach the retention rate of the AUM model, and why Sean is looking to add in-house tax preparation for his top clients as a way to further deepen the relationship and stickiness of his top clients. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Sean Tidlaska. Welcome, Sean Tidlaska, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. I've been a loyal listener since your first episode, and I'm so glad that you got coerced into doing this podcast. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad you're able to join us. You, know, you did a you did a really popular post on the site, uh, I think three plus years ago now, about you had like launched your own firm 12 months earlier and you had put forth your like 12 tips to survive your first 12 months, which we, we kind of cheated a little. I think it was actually 13 tips, but you know, 12, 12 tips in 12 months just sound a lot better. So you had like your 12 slash 13 tips of just what had worked for you because I know you had a you had a great start coming out of the gate. You were building subscription clients. You had gotten dozens going. And you know, now it's a couple of years later. I know the practice has grown much larger for you. There's several team members on board. You've got visions of growing it even bigger. And so I, I thought it would be a cool opportunity as, as both maybe in a little bit of revisiting some of what you'd written and talked about in that 
article and how it's changed in the years since, and also just how you're looking at the the advisory business now and going forward. Because I know you run a, a little bit of a different business model than a lot of others that are out there. You know, you you built early on the subscription fee realm. You do a lot with retainer fees and some net worth based fees. And you know, as we have all this discussion around sort of the industry's innovation of advisor business models, I'm always a fan of talking to advisors that are doing something a little bit differently and making it work. So just really excited to talk about uh, the advisory business and what you built. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's crazy to think that that article was three and a half years ago. Now I'm now I'm just over four and a half years into my business. So happy to dive in uh, wherever, wherever you want to start. So I think to start, just paint us a little bit of a picture of the advisory firm as it exists today. Like, who are you? What do you do? Who do you do it for? What does this financial planning business look like? Great. Yeah. So we currently serve 115, I uh, actually just signed a couple more clients, 117 families across the country. Most of them are here in the Bay Area. Um, I'm, I'm located in the Bay Area in Burlingame, just, just south of uh, San Francisco. Our team, we have uh, four team members. I'm 39. Most of my clients are kind of in my age group. Uh, our average client's about 38. Uh, a lot of tech professionals, a lot of couples, kind, kind of a wide range of uh, people just starting out in their professional career. I say we help people like 25 to 45 year olds. We have a few clients that are in their in their 50s, a couple in their 60s, but but most of our clients are in their their 30s. Uh, people starting families, buying their first home, getting life insurance, those sorts of things for them. In terms of what we do for them, it's a comprehensive financial planning. I say like kind of the three differentiators for us are we have a financial life planning tilt. I try to balance doing the life planning and being efficient. So we do a blend of some of Kinder's work, uh, money quotient, some other values exercises that I've, I've learned to use and incorporate in my practice over time. Um, a second piece, we do a lot of cash flow planning. I like saying we help clients turn income into wealth. And then we do a lot of tax planning as well. We are able to do taxes in-house. That's something I've experimented with over the years. But what we're doing this year is we're gonna partner with a, a, a tax preparation firm. For some of our clients, Tax preparation is covered in their fee, um, but for most of them, they they pay that separately. For our business model, it's a it's a it might be a little bit different than 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 some that we we charge a flat annual retainer, and that covers their investment management, it covers their financial planning, and then um, for some of the the we call them comprehensive clients. Um, there's about twenty of those. Uh, it covers their their tax return as well. We also do tax projections for all of our clients uh, and. In, in the fall, uh, we do a lot of stock option planning. So helping people figure out like AMT crossovers and, and things like that. I like to tell our clients, we help them kind of align their, their, their money with their, with their values. So, so you got a lot of interesting stuff there in, in terms of what the firm does. So let me start on the, the fee model side. Cause you had, you'd kind of put in there, like you do a flat annual retainer, covers financial planning, covers investment management. So talk to us a little bit more about the the retainer fee model. Like what what are you charging? How is the fee set? What does it add up to for clients? Yeah, so that that's evolved a lot over over the years. I've tried net worth and income. I've tried an AUM model where once they get to a certain amount of AUM, they don't have to pay a, a retainer anymore. So what a typical fee structure looks like right now is we do charge a one-time onboarding fee for single people. That's typically 
five hundred to a thousand dollars. For couples, it's a thousand to two thousand dollars, and then we charge a, a monthly uh, retainer. Uh, on average, it's about like maybe like three hundred thirty dollars a month. So our average fee per client is about four thousand dollars per year. Um, since there since there is more work that goes on in that first year, we charge kind of that that one time onboarding fee. So say it's like a thousand dollars for that onboarding fee, and then their their retainer might be like four thousand dollars for the year. So their monthly retainer starts on the first or the fifteenth after that first meeting. We kind of have two packages. Like we that we have one that's called a wealth builder package, and I, I've always wanted to serve try to serve, you know, maybe like a young professional, someone who's kind of just starting their first job. So our lowest package starts at about five hundred dollars up front and one hundred and fifty bucks a month. That's that's for someone who maybe is referred to us or someone that finds us on our website that like, I really just want to help. But what's, what's actually posted out there. That's like client fa- or like public facing is we have a $5,000 flat annual retainer for individuals. And it's $7,500 for couples. That's our minimum. And that's what I was referring to as our, our comprehensive package. And that includes the, the tax return as well. And then just recently I added a net worth kind of kicker to it. So what I was finding was there were some clients that were coming to us, and it's you know it's it's, it's probably just because I'm here in the Bay Area, but there's there's a, there's a lot of wealth here, and I was finding that some clients they had a net worth of five six million dollars, and then if they were an individual, they would just be paying five thousand dollars a year, but their complexity was really complex and doing a lot of tax planning and things and investment planning and things like that. So I added a net worth kicker, and it essentially works out to be. The, the $5,000 covers your first $2 million of net worth. And then for each additional million dollars, it's $1,000. So it's it's 0.1% of your net worth above $2 million. So for example, we actually just signed our, our biggest client um, this week. Her net worth was like over $8 million. She worked at Airbnb for, for, for like six years before they IPO'd. And so her fee was, you know, it's that, $5,000 for the first 2 million. And then for the next, you know, $6 million, it was a thousand bucks per year. So it's per million per year. So it works out to about $11,000 um, for the year for her. Interesting. And, and so when you talk about this net worth fee or the sort of the net worth, I guess, kicker add on for more net worth, more complexity, like it, does everything go into that bucket? Like just it, I feel like it sometimes sounds like a simple thing, but it's not always in practice of just figuring out like what exactly counts in net in net worth, like everything, even stuff that you're not necessarily doing much with. Are there certain exceptions? How do you value maybe things that are a little li- less liquid and harder to value? How, how does that work in practice? Yeah. So for her, it included everything. She didn't have any complex, like, like small businesses or anything like that. It did include like her home. And yeah, I know that there are some firms out there that, that they might not advise on, on certain things. To be honest, this is a newer model for us. We just rolled it out um, at the beginning of the year and we're in January now, uh, towards the end of January. So it's, it, it, it's, it's a fairly new for us. Um, so it's kind of everything that we advise on is, is what I would, I would say we would include in that. Okay. And, and, and is the idea that you'll sit down and update this every, every year going forward? Yeah. I'd imagine every two years going forward. Yeah. I don't want to have to get into the practice of like every time we, you know, do a review, like a review meeting that like we have to sit down and talk about fees. And, and so, so talk to us about just how many clients overall now are, are 
I guess like with the firm or under packages, you said 117 clients. Is that all, all 107 families, all of whom are in some version of these retainer fee models, either they're your wealth builder clients that are 150 a month or they're the the more main clients that are at 330 a month or they're the comprehensive clients that are at $5,000 minimum includes tax services? Yeah. So we're at like 117. I would say about 20 of them are on this comprehensive package. Everyone pretty much gets the same same type of a service. So we just wanted to have a way to kind of tier it with like their the amount of wealth and the amount of complexity that we're, we're dealing with and kind of a little bit, you know, the, the capacity to pay to some extent. I'm the lead on about 63 clients right now. Liz Plot, she's on the team. Um, she's actually based in Maryland. And we have maybe like three clients out in Maryland right now. Uh, she moved there about a year and a half ago. Uh, her husband's in the military and got reassigned out there. So she's the lead on about like 36. Uh, we have a new t- newer team member, Brandon Amaral. He joined us just about five months ago, and he's already the lead on maybe like 15, 16 clients. One thing that was a big shift for me was last year, I stopped taking on clients of my own. So I've kind of capped my my capacity so that way I can focus on other parts of the business. So right now, Liz and Brandon are the only lead advisors that are, are taking on new clients at this moment. Interesting. So, so when you talk about this framing, now help us understand a little bit more of just what do clients get on an ongoing basis. I mean, you've mentioned like for our comprehensive clients, we'll do tax projections as uh, as an additional service. But like what's the core service that I get from your firm throughout the year at $330 a month as a core client? Yeah. So everyone pretty much gets the same service. I just did it that way just to make it easier to, to know what we're going to be offering our clients. So when a client signs up, we have an initial onboarding sequence of three meetings. We call them specific things. So the first one uh, is an initial client meeting. We call it an ICM. We go over their values, their balance sheet, anything that's that, that I think is really, really important, anything that they really think is important. So for, for me, I want to make sure we look at all their insurance policies and their credit score. In the second meeting, it's more about their investments and cash flow. And then the third meeting, we deal a lot more with the the goals, uh, estate plan. And by the end of the whole financial planning process, by, by the end of those three meetings, it's been, a, we will have covered the whole comprehensive financial yeah, process. Kind of the sequence is, let's understand what's important to you. Uh, let's understand like your cash flow to see what goals can afford and you know how much money is left over on a monthly basis. Then that third meeting is, let's talk about your goals. Your, we call it a, a dreams and possibilities exercise. And then we start prioritizing, okay, you're going to fund this account um, first. And then from there, we I call it a 4-2 model. So the two part is we we have progress meetings twice a year. So every six months, we'll get together for a progress meeting. But every quarter, we'll touch base. And typically, what that looks like is in the, the spring, we're doing our clients' tax returns and reviewing their tax returns. Last year, we did 65 returns in-house. Uh, this year, we're probably looking at, you know, Helping our clients, like we have, like we have, like over a hundred clients, so we'll probably be uh, helping them review the returns in the fall. We're doing open enrollment, and then like doing a lot of tax projections. So I say at least every quarter we're we're touching base with our clients, and we have set agendas for each one of those meetings. 
I can share with you my client service uh, calendar. We, we break it up into six month increments and it's broken out over two years. So you don't need to review someone's estate plan every six months or every year, but once every two years, it fits into one of those six month chunks. But every every time we meet with our clients, we're going to review their balance sheet. We send them a survey in advance to like let us know if they want to add anything to the agenda. And that's how we kind of uh, break things out. So yeah, so it's like kind of broken out into six month increments with consistent agendas. Interesting, interesting. So, so first of all, I'd love to share out the client service calendar. So, for for those who are listening, this is episode two hundred and fifteen. So, if you go to kitsis.com slash two one five, we'll we'll add a add a link for you to be able to look at the client service calendar that Sean uses. Sean, can you talk us through a little bit more though? Just what is like? What is this? two-year cycle look like? What does come in the in the six-month increments over the two-year cycle? Yeah. So so through January through June, this is kind of the beginning of a, a new two-year cycle for all of our clients. Uh, in this in this in this in this segment, like we're looking at everyone's insurance, sorry, not insurance, uh, investments. Once a year we we collect all of their statements, like including their 401ks, because sometimes we'll provide recommendations and we're not really sure if they'll they actually implement it. Because sometimes you have to change your current investments and then also your future contributions. And so we we, we review all their investments during this during this group of meetings. We are doing a life planning exercise. So we're actually using there's a free one through Goldman Sachs, uh, the money mind, where you can kind of see how people think about their money. Um, so we have them do that exercise and we're, we review that with them together. Once a year, we try to do some life planning exercise with them. Last year, we did uh, Kinder's Three Questions with them. The year before that, we did a, a reverse bucket list with them. Those are a lot of the... Uh, so, uh, we're you, also- so you kind of, you come up with some new life planning oriented exercise from, from year to year that you're then going to do for all clients that are going through that cycle? Yeah. Uh, I try to keep it keep it new and, and, and fresh uh, with our clients. I don't know the standard uh, retention rate is for a model like mine. I always, sometimes I feel like I always need to like pull a rabbit out of a hat or like just do something like magical or amazing for my clients to, to keep them excited and on, 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 on board. Like, cause like we're not doing AUM. So I feel like it's easy for clients to, to kind of like move on, or I, I call it kind of graduating when we've automated all their finances and kind of taught them how to, to manage things on their own. We use Betterment for investment management. So it's easy for them to just flip over to become a retail client. So, so that's why I kind of try to keep things interesting with, with additional items, like kind of additional like life planning items to kind of get them thinking a little bit differently, like, like the reverse bucket list. Um, it's, thinking about like the last year, what are three things that you're most proud of? You know, a lot of times people don't take time to stop and think about that kind of stuff. And, and you know, I would get the feedback, man, it was really hard to do that to kind of, to think back about, about things like that. All right. So the first six month cycle, there's some reviewing investments. There's doing a life planning exercise. It's the, I guess it's the first part of the year. So you may be, ha- may be doing your spring review of tax returns as well. So then what comes in the in the second half of the first year. Yeah, that's right. We also do um, a financial independence review. So that could be putting things in right capital. That doesn't that doesn't really mean a lot for our clients since they're they're so young um, and we're projecting for like 70 years, but kind of we have some some rules of thumb about like having them be on track. And then we also check their credit scores in that first six months. In the next six months we do the balance sheet review again. We send out a financial satisfaction survey. It's similar to the 
the questions that money quotient has about like how satisfied are you with your your savings that you're on track to retirement that money isn't causing a relationship in the in the or money isn't causing an issue in the relationships that you care about we check their progress to their goal towards their goals this is something i wish that we had better tools with in our industry of just goal tracking uh, right now it's just kind of manual in an excel file a lot of our planning is in excel so talk to us a little bit more about that like what kind of goals are you tracking where it doesn't work to you know, have them in right capital or some other financial planning software and just be doing updated projections towards goals? Yeah, it's things like funding their home down payment goal. You, sometimes we like with the we we set up a banking structure for our clients of, you know, this is how much you should have in your checking and savings, this is how much you should have in your emergency fund, this is how much you should have in a high yield savings. And then we kind of create some of these call it like a possibilities fund where it's like a three to five year time horizon of a goal. And we do something with Betterment where we set up 40% stocks and 60% bonds. So it's it's a little bit invested in the market, but it's kind of muted from the, the downswings. So we might use that for a home down payment if it's a little bit uh, further away. And then that is a multi-purpose account. So it could cover things like if you want to buy a new car, you know, start a business one day, supplement your kids' savings for college. It's hard to kind of like segment that out to like what portion of that fund is towards what goal. So, so things like that, we've kind of just had to um, create just, just, just custom tables in Excel to kind of just track like, you know, how funded is that goal? Okay. And so, so what else comes in the second half of year one? You've got a, a financial satisfaction survey of how they feel about their, their progress. You're actually quantifying and tracking progress towards goals so that you're tracking an Excel spreadsheet. What what else comes up in the second half of the first year? Yeah, I had to pull up my client service calendar so I'd have it in front of me <laughs> so I could talk you through it. We uh, we do the estate plan review. We do open enrollment review for our clients and then also doing the tax projection during that time. And so then what, what changes or shifts in year two? Because I'm presuming some of these like tax prep and review in the spring and an open enrollment review in the fall are, are kind of consistent annual processes because you've got clients that deal with that on an ongoing basis. So what what otherwise changes in year two of a two-year client service calendar cycle? Yeah, so a lot of the same things we covered in that in the first six months, updating their financial independence projection. Uh, we have an update survey for them, doing another new life planning exercise uh, with them. This is the sequence where we review all their investments, checking their performance, making sure they it matches their their time horizon and risks. So a lot of the same things we kind of did in that first January to June bucket. Okay, and then is it is it similar in the in the second half of year two another? Financial satisfaction survey, goals, goals update, open enrollment review. Yeah, the other two things there are checking everyone's beneficiaries and then also their all of their insurance policies. And so, yeah, again, for some of these things, like there, I wish there was better tools. Um, so, like for all their insurance policies, we create a tab in Excel that lists out all the premiums and and deductibles and liability limits and. You're making sure that so like we, we have it all listed out in a table like that, and then same thing for their uh, beneficiaries. We actually have our clients t- send us screenshots of all of their accounts that do have beneficiaries, and make sure that they actually are the people that they want. Like so, so actually like kind of making them do that that legwork, and then uh, if they add any new accounts over the last couple of years, uh, we have them update their beneficiaries and and, and send us screenshots of that as well. Interesting, uh, interesting. And so, why a two year cycle? I mean, just like you. 
You could have made it a one year bus cycle. You could have made it like a three or four or five year cycle. Just wondering like what, what brought you to two years is the way that you structure this. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was just looking at all the things that we could potentially cover in a financial planning engagement. And we wrote it all down on a post-it note. Liz and I, we went to like a, we did like an offsite retreat. She used to live in Monterey, which is pretty close to where I, where I live here in the Bay Area. And we like just wrote down all the things that we could possibly cover in a financial planning engagement. And then some things we review every single meeting. And then some things I just thought like over a two-year cycle, it'd be good to, uh, to review. We could probably update it, like maybe just do the estate plan every three years or as life life event driven. I think just two years just made sense to us. And this is actually, I think it's our second or third time. I think it's our third time going through the two-year cycle. So we're kind of repeating and it kind of just gives us some structure and it just, yeah, it just kind of made sense to me. Interesting. And, and, and do you get any, I guess, any gaps or any, any challenges with clients that you've got this two-year cycle with your four, four, two meeting structure of, you know, four check-ins, two in, two in person with updates, but your model is monthly subscription fees. So you do, you, do you get any pushback for clients? Like I'm, I'm paying you every month, but we only meet or we only check in four times a year. Why don't you charge me quarterly or what have you done for me this month? You know, not, not explicitly, but I, that is something I worry about. That's why like, I try to set expectations or I do set expectations up front that this is an annual fee, but you pay it monthly and we just break it up into monthly installments just to make it easier to pay on cash flow, and to alleviate you know, uh, worry from the client or prospective clients. And I say, I, I want you to be happy that you have us in your corner. If at you know, any time you don't feel like you're getting value, you can, you can cancel at any time. You're not locked in for any certain length of time. There's no like penalties or anything like that. When I first started, I, I was tracking like the value that I was like the quantifiable value that I was bringing to my clients, and on average it was four hundred fifty-seven dollars a month. So, and like at the time I was charging like I think two hundred eighty dollars a month. So I knew that I was actually delivering more value than than what I was charging. And now I don't I don't think about it that way. I'm like confident in the value that I'm providing to my clients, and if it's not a good fit, then you know, we we don't normally end on like, I don't think we've really had any clients like, like fire us. It's, it's more been like a mutual uh, kind of parting of ways. Um, so no, I haven't got, there, there are some clients that are like, like they, they, they have like maybe just two or three that are like, yeah, what are we going to do this month? What are we going to do this month? And I'm like, as a reminder, we're not going to meet every month or do something every month. It's a, it's, it's going to be every six months. Some of those, some of those have kind of decided on their own that, that this isn't a good fit and then they've left. So I, I am curious, you mentioned there that there was a point where you were charging clients $280 a month, but you you measured it out and figured out the average client was getting upwards of $400 a month of value. How do you actually figure out that number in your model? Like, Where does that number come from? Yeah, I had a um, results thus far tab. So for each client, we have a big Excel just kind of like a book or just a big Excel file for each client. And one of the tabs I had there was a results thus far. So if I was recommending them changing their deductible on their their auto or homeowner's insurance, that would make their premiums go down. So I'd plug that in there. If some one of my clients was, I mean, you, you see this all the time, like some, some of the clients were like, they were doing a Roth 401k because their company just started offering it and thought it was a good idea. And, and they put their really, really high income earner. So we flipped them over to pre, uh, do the pre-tax version. And so that that could save some of my clients like $9,000 in taxes. Early on, there were some clients that had some whole life 
insurance policies. We were able to get new term policies in place and save them uh, that monthly fee. All kinds of stuff like that. Refinancing a mortgage. I was really big into credit card hacks uh, early on um, of like, you know, you get a $500 signing bonus. Earlier on, a lot of my clients had student loans and we'd help them refinance that and get, get refinance bonuses. So some of my clients they refinanced with three different companies. So they would break up their big student loan into three smaller chunks. And each time they did that, they would get between three to $500. One of my clients actually got $1,300 to refinance her student loans and it lowered the interest rate and it shortened the period of time for her to pay it back. So there's all kinds of things that, that I was tracking to, to come up with that, with that number. Interesting. And so the idea is just every time you do a, a, a thing for the client, you are capturing it in your results thus far, Tab. And, and I guess like so, some of these end out being sort of one-time items. Like we we did a refi and you got a you know $500 credit or bonus or we swapped credit cards and you got a you got a $500 signing bonus. Others are are more ongoing. Like we replaced your expensive insurance with something better or we we changed your deductible and and improved your premiums and like you're you're saving X dollars a month every month going forward now that that we made that change. I had like a green, yellow, and red uh, coloring to it. So, so green was actual things that improved their, like their real cash flow. Uh, yellow was things that like maybe deferred their cash burden. You know, so like like changing their four hundred one k kind of just defers like when the taxes are due. And then the red actually cost the client money. So like getting an estate plan, things like that. So then, and then at the bottom, I had like. Like I had like kind of two categories, like the the real kind of cash savings, and then like kind of the 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 like the the cash savings, like when I would take into account also the uh, like the kind of like the four hundred one k switch. And I would I would kind of do that early on, just just you know there there is that imposter syndrome of when you're first starting your firm, and it was kind of just just for my own confidence to be honest that that I was delivering value to my clients, and you know I stopped doing that maybe after a year or so. Oh, interesting. So you were doing it. You were doing it early on as a result thus far, Tab, and adding it up, but you actually don't do that going forward at this point? That's correct. Okay. So you just, you don't, you don't feel any pressure to like, you don't feel any pressure to keep doing it for the clients and it was really more just for, for your end to get you comfortable with your fee. You don't actually feel the pressure to, to keep doing this, to send it to clients on an ongoing basis. Right. Yeah. And also one thing that it really helped me with, you, you noted like kind of my, my, my average fee at the beginning after maybe, maybe a year, you know, I kind of got more confidence and I, I and I like, I raised my fees for existing clients. And so I went, that, that results thus far tab helped me when I had those conversations with my clients about, about raising fees, to be honest. So like kind of at the end of a review meeting, um, I went through and raised fees for about uh, 20 clients. At kind of at the end of at the end of one of our meetings, I would say, you know, these are the things that we've accomplished together. You know, I keep track of some of the actionable things that that you've done that actually have improved your cash flow. If you were to become a new client today, this is what your new fee would be. Uh, but you know, I want to thank you for kind of your loyalty, or you know, I'd, I'd kind of frame it in like a certain way to like say that like, I'm not going to make you come up to the current fee, but this is this is what your new fee is going to be. So having that kind of data was like really helpful when I did raise fees. And now I'm at a point where I feel like my fees are, are pretty fair across the board for all of my all, all of my clients, where that's another reason I stopped keeping track of it as well. So talk to us a little bit more about just what the what the typical client looks like. Just who's who's paying $330 a month, 4K plus a year 
for you know accounts that get sent out to Betterment for advisors? Like you you said, there are thirty something year old clients on average, and you said average client is thirty eight. But talk to us a little bit more about just who who hires you, who engages into this kind of model? Because I think for so many of uh financial advisors out there, like that's a that's a pretty healthy size fee, in particular for younger clients that don't necessarily have investment accounts. And especially if you're sending the investment accounts out to Betterment. So who 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 engages the service? I would say that's a there's there's a lot of um, tech professionals in my area. There's also some people like that are just starting out as like uh, we have some some teachers. But I would say kind of like the the classic client is like two two professionals. Uh, maybe they just had a baby or they wanna they wanna buy a home. And they're coming to me saying things like, you know, we've been meaning to do this for a long time. We don't know what we don't know. Actually, this week I've had, it's kind of funny, I had three prospects from Google reach out. And, you know, I, I like making the, it, it, it's kind of cheesy because they work at Google. But like, I, I, you know, I always say like, you know, you can Google the answer out there. Uh, the answers are out there. There's tons of information, but I help you shorten your learning curve, help you filter out the noise. This is something we do on a day-to-day basis. So we'll help you figure out what's, what what you really need to listen to. I'm a big, I did the, I read the book, Building a Story Brand. And that kind of helped me frame how I think about my relationship with my, with my clients and kind of in the prospect process as well of kind of taking them on a journey from confused and overwhelmed is where I feel like a lot of people come to me. And then through, by working together, they're confident and informed and we're providing them an opportunity set of uh, kind of decisions and trade-offs to make. So, I mean, just getting back to your original question, like the typical client, they, they, they make you know a good living here in, in the Bay Area. So they're able to afford the fee. Since we don't charge an asset center management fee, most of the time we're sending our clients old IRAs to their current 401k. So we're actually doing a lot of rollovers into 401k plans. And that way it allows us to do backdoor uh, Roth IRAs for our clients every year. So those are the typical, those are the types of clients that, that typically come to us. And I, I guess like also like a lot of the issues they're facing, like specifically with like the, the Tesla and we have had some Airbnb clients lately is a lot of, a lot of people, they don't do anything with their stock. They just kind of let it vest. Like, and, and a common theme I've been seeing is they don't know what they would do if they did sell it. So they've just been kind of accumulating, accumulating with Airbnb in particular, they were able to, people were able to sell 15% of their shares in the IPO. And and for some people, that's like a million dollars. And so it's just sitting there in cash and they're like, well, okay, now what? What do we do with this? And then, so some of the things we're doing is like, okay, did you did you pay enough in taxes? Like, let's, let's make sure you paid your quarterly estimate. You know, this was before January 15th. Like, make sure you get your last quarterly estimate in there. Let's see like what you're going to be on track for next year. So it's a lot of that tax planning. And then, kind of do, having that values tilt, we're doing things like, what's the money for? How, how can we invest it? To If you don't really know what it's going to be for, like how can we invest it uh, and still maintain liquidity to it and give you kind of give you those, that's the way you kind of like that, that possibilities fund. And, and so what's, I guess, what's typical income for clients then? Because I'm going to presume just if you've got clients at some of the tech firms in, in Northern California, Bay Area, Silicon Valley area, some have some big stock uh, shares that vest, as you've noted here, but I'm, I'm assuming incomes are pretty healthy as well. Is there a, a typical income profile for clients? Yeah, I would say it's 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 you know it's it, it's probably like four hundred thousand dollars when you add in when you add in the stock that's vesting. You know, on a, you know, I would say like pretty 
pretty easily. Most most of my clients make like six figures just as kind of base. Uh, bonus is like ten to twenty percent, and then like with the vesting stock, it's just crazy. Honestly, it's just crazy the amount of wealth that's here in the Bay Area. Like a lot of my clients are are first generation wealth. You know, they didn't come from money. They kind of grew up similar similar to me, just like a middle class like kind of background. A lot of clients are like from Im- immigrant families, like so they're like kind of like the first generation that went to college. So they didn't have like really great role models for investing. Like their their parents might have just told them, okay, save, don't go into debt, and that kind of that that's it. So when they have this this amount of money, it's it's they're not they're not used to dealing with this type of money. They don't have like we don't talk about it, you know, as a culture. We don't talk about it. We don't have good financial literacy, you know, in our schools. That's so yeah, so they they are, they are making pretty good pretty good livings, and so I guess it's it's good to frame them from that perspective. Like when you when you have clients, when you're working with clients that make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, three hundred thirty dollar month retainer fees, five to seven thousand dollar, you know, annual fees including tax services. Like you're still coming out with something that's one or two percent of their income for what they earn, which is you know, wealth's kind of relative, what's expensive or not is relative. So, you know, what might be a an expensive fee for some clients is totally quite manageable and comfortable for others. You're you're working with a segment that's got some pretty healthy income and assets, albeit not traditional liquid investable assets, but they have incomes, they have net worth. So, you know, f- fees can feel very reasonable relative to net worth, even though by industry averages like you have a very above average fee. Yeah, I just looked it up and my average is uh $260,000 for family income for for my clients. And I would say kind of at the low end like maybe 50 or $60,000 is is kind of at the very very low end of what someone needs to be to make to be able to afford $150 a month. But that's kind of where I, I was I, I heard about that 1 to 2% of of income to kind of set your fee um from you guys at XYPN and, and you Michael. And then also kind of as I have raised fees over time, I've also tried to think about, you know, what what's the alternative? Like if they go somewhere else, like what other firms would be charging them? And if they have investable assets of four or five, six million dollars, I'm trying to do what's kind of fair for us as a business of like what what I know we're providing, like the service we're providing and, and what they would get somewhere else. But also try trying to balance that with with, you know, what what's reasonable, what do I need um, as a firm to grow and and hire new team members and 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 from that end as well. Yeah, it's been interesting. We've we've seen this just cropping up in our pricing research on the on the Kitsis research side as well. That when we see advisors charging sort of flat fee models, whether it's annual retainer fee, monthly subscription fee, just you know outright upfront financial planning fees, that you know the the sort of benchmark fee for AUM is about one percent of, of of assets, right? That's our sort of traditional industry benchmark. And and the the sort of fees as percentage of income I'm finding are are showing up right around the two percent range. You know, sort of one percent of assets or two percent of income. And I don't think there's anything magical about it. Like it just seems to be where people are comfortable. Like one percent of incomes would an impulse buy, two percent of incomes kind of the all right, I gotta talk to my spouse about this, but if we're on board, we're on board. You can get a little bit higher than two percent of income if you've got a good focused offering but you have to be able to clearly articulate what your value is and why you're why you're worth that fee and it just strikes me like relative to those numbers your fees end out right in that right in that same space that you know $5,000 $7,500 fees on an average client of 
260,000 of income is, you know, right around two to 3% of their income, maybe a little bit less for the, for the clients that do have some, you know, stock bonuses, vesting and other things in there. That's sort of lumpy, illiquid income, but a big chunk of their net worth. Cause that's who you're working with when you've got a lot of tech clients that are building tech company wealth. So, so then talk to us about like, where do these clients come from that like that you're getting, you know, multi hundred thousand income, multi-million dollar clients in, in the Bay area. Like I understand there's a lot of, there's a lot of assets and income and wealth there because of what's going on in the technology sector, but there's also a small army of financial services professionals in the Bay area because there's a lot of wealth and where there's wealth there, there tends to be financial services industry to participate in that wealth. So like where are your clients coming from and how are you getting to the point where you're, I mean, at the end of the day, you're four years, four and a half years in, you've got a hundred plus clients that are paying multi-thousand dollar financial planning fees with a multi-hundred thousand dollar income. Where's all this new client flow coming from? How do you get them all? Initially, when I started, it was kind of a build it and they will come, you know, I like, like kind of like the field of dreams uh, analogy. So that doesn't really help out kind of newer, newer. Well, so initially there wasn't a ton of people on the XY planning network. I think I had 40 leads from the XY planning network when I first launched four and a half years ago. A lot of those were reaching out for student loan planning over the years. You know, I was, I was like really, really hustling, like meeting prospects I made myself available like when, when they were available. So I'd meet prospects on the weekends. I remember there was three weekends within a month, I think, where I met three prospects for hour-long meetings on Sundays. So like three different Sundays, I met three prospects at, at a time. And just <laughs> I remember being just exhausted. So I was meeting people at night on the weekends. When I say like kind of build it and they will come, like I mean like putting up my website, making it really easy for people to to sign up for a meeting, being on the relevant websites like NAPFA, Fioli Network, XYPN, CFP. And then that first year I got I had two people that were they were actually friends from business school who I did a little bit of planning for, just just kind of on a pro bono basis. And they're like, you know, this is really great. How can we like, you know, help support you? And so I asked them to write a Yelp review and, and just from those, and so two of them wrote a Yelp review and just from those two Yelp reviews, six people signed up for clients in that first year. And so kind of fast forward, you know, there's, there's certain rules around Yelp and, and soliciting reviews and, you know, there's actually new changes happening right now. But for me, what, to make sure that I was like covering covering myself from a compliance standpoint is I wouldn't just try and cherry pick my clients each year. I would ask all of my clients to, to submit a review and send them a link to my, my Yelp page. So kind of fast forwarding now to today, about a third of my clients find me on Yelp, you know, being maybe it's a Bay area thing, or I think it's, I think it's also like a social proof kind of a thing where you want to see like someone's review of, you know, even things, you know, you know, things like on Amazon or restaurants, you kind of want to see some, some reviews out there. So I've got over 20 reviews that are five star from like real clients. A lot of them are, you know, when they, a lot of them actually like, were like, write it as they're leaving, you know, they're like, thank you. We liked working with you. So, you know, when they would write like nice things, I would say, well, would you mind dropping that into a Yelp review? So a third come from Yelp, a third come from, from existing clients and just kind of like my natural market of people referring and then a third from like kind of everywhere else kind of just like a, 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 a nothing nothing really stands out from that last third so so take me back a little bit more to the the beginning of 
of what got you going. Like just, you said a whole bunch of different stuff there of you stood up your own website, you got out on other websites, XYPN, NAFA, Family Network, CFP Board, which all have fine and advisor profiles. You got set up on Yelp, you got some from there. Like as you look back, I mean, what what actually was working, what didn't help as much, you know, for like advisors that are going to get are going today and hearing this, like where should they be focusing, or at least what worked for you in in focusing to try to get that initial traction? Yeah, I I heard like networking with like centers of influence was a thing. So I tried to do that initially with like big RIAs here. But I was when when I first launched, I moved to the Bay Area I think August of 2015, and then I launched May of 2016. So I was pretty new to the area. Um, I'm from Southern California originally. So I didn't have like a big personal or professional network in the area. So I was networking with with larger RIA firms. And, you know, if I had to do it over again, I, I would I would skip that and and focus more on NAPFA and XYPN members in my area. Because when you're first starting off like that, you you you'll you'll kind of take anybody and you're really hungry, you'll you'll give way more service. And then once you're in the network for a while or you're a NAPFA person, you know, you you have a lot of you'll 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 get prospects that aren't good fits for you. And so then you want somewhere to refer them to. So I would have I would have focused more on kind of NAPFA firms and and XYPN firms and kind of developing relationships there. Cause like with the Just big in terms of like joining the organizations and literally going out and meet other advisors in the area and just saying like, hey, you're growing, you're doing so well. Like I'll, I'm newer, I'll take your cast offs and I'll serve them really, really well. <laughs> Cause I'm new and I need some clients and and you're established and you've got a more focused clientele at this point. Yeah, like coffee chats with them, going to the local FPA events, going to the local conferences. Um, th- those sorts of things, kind of building relationships that way. Okay. So so organizations like NAPFA and XYPN, you also mentioned like fee-only networks, website CFP boards, website, were, were those actually helpful for you or didn't draw much? You, yeah, you mentioned FPA actually as well. Like what was what was working for you at least with the asterisk? Like this is what people do in the Bay Area. Your Your mileage may vary depending on your regional location around the country. Right, I think I, I think the XYPN network was where I got the most leads that that first year. Like I mentioned, like getting I got forty leads from from XYPN. I think I had a total. Of, and when I say lead, it's like we do a um, a one hour discovery meeting. We did like about a hundred that that first year. So that was what was working for me early early on. I mean, I tried I tried a lot of different things. Like I re- I went to my local library and uh, did a um, speaker series there, and that's actually how I kind of found some of my professional networks. Uh, professionals in my network. So one one session, I partnered with an estate planning attorney, um, and we did a estate planning for young parents uh, session together. One I did buying your first home in the Bay Area with a real estate a professional. Uh, and then another one was just like top, or just like a bunch of like tips for for millennials. And there weren't that many people that attended, like maybe like six. And then one was like my wife Jen, and then one was like the um, the real estate agent's parents came. <laughs> But like there was, there was, I did get like a client from that and like she, she ended up signing up like a year later. And so I, I kind of just approached it to the, there's like a, there was a programs person at the, the library and said, Hey, I'm a, a new financial planner. I'd love to put out some content. They don't, the library doesn't have a lot, ton of content for young, young people uh, that are young professionals. And so they wanted to do that. And they actually even, uh, they, they actually even paid me for it. They, they were like, Oh, do you, do you have like a, a an appearance fee or an honorarium? I was like, 
I don't even know what an honorarium is. So I had to like look what that is. And uh, I asked what their normal. So I didn't. I didn't really didn't know. And so then I asked like, what, they, what do they normally pay? And and he's he suggested like 150 bucks a session. Um, and I would have done it for free, but like since they were offering, and I was trying to be scrappy and do whatever side hustles I could, uh, it was a nice little perk. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, uh, early on, like. If you'll pay anything that's better than the zero I was otherwise going to get with that time. So sure, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yes, that. So then talk to us a little bit about how it how it grew and changed over time. You know, you as you noted, like you've got a few team members on board now. So so I guess I'm wondering, like, what was the point at which you decided okay, I, I, I need to hire, I need some more help in here. I'm going to, you know, this has to go beyond just me individually serving my clients. When, when did that first transition come? Yeah. So that happened pretty early on uh, for me and my vision for the firm has changed over time and evolved over time. I would think, I would think like maybe, maybe just over a year of kind of being in business, I was I was getting traction. I was bringing on a lot of clients, but just the onboarding process itself, it takes maybe like 20 steps to sign the agreement and send Dropbox and get them on the right capital. And so I was just kind of wanting to leverage my time better. Um, so I, I started by reaching out to a virtual planning group. It's called Virtual Partners Group. And then they would do I hired a, someone to just help me build like an operations manual that only lasted a couple of months. I would say when you're at like maybe 70 to 80% capacity, that's when you want to hire someone because then you have time to train them. And then from there, I decided I, I wanted to have someone more in-house that could be could write emails to clients and just do more, more client-facing stuff. Um, so then that's when I reached out to Simply Paraplanner and they they posted a job and that's where I found Liz and she just celebrated her three-year anniversary with me. And she was an accredited, or she is a, an accredited financial counselor. She's since got her CFP and she started part-time, like just, just 10 hours a week. And now she, she was full-time for a while, uh, but then with COVID and she's got two little girls at home, she's move back a little bit to maybe like 30 hours a week. So that's kind of like how that kind of evolved over time to where, you know, we, she just started helping out, like maybe taking notes in meetings. Then she would start presenting a little bit in meetings. And now, now that she, now she's like kind of grown into like a a senior planner here and is doing a phenomenal job. And that's, you know, to be honest, that's been one of the most rewarding things is just grooming like the next generation of planners and, and seeing just seeing her confidence grow and her capabilities grow and uh, her personality really come out in meetings. And I mentioned like things have kind of evolved for me. I've, I've, I kind of have gotten more satisfaction out of that than, than doing the di- the day, the day-to-day client work and, and meeting with clients. And, you know, to be honest, I, I, I feel kind of drained uh, after, after meeting with a client of like, I just, I, I only do two client meetings a day and that's, 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 that's enough for me to, um, to really feel like wiped out at the end of the day. So it's been really great, like seeing, seeing her grow. And, you know, that is something I'm, I'm passionate about is like helping provide pathways into the industry and helping planners grow and, and, and develop their careers. And so was there a particular, I guess I'm just wondering like client size or revenue point where just you got comfortable enough to, to pull the trigger. I mean, I know we, you know, in the industry, we often say like you need to hire before you're at capacity, but when you're getting going and it doesn't necessarily feel like there's as many dollars coming through as you wish there were, like we can say that, but it's still 
usually hurts at the time, especially when you're hiring your your first person because it you know it doubles your headcount from you to two. You know, it's it's one of the biggest financial setbacks. Just taking the leap on that hire, like what what led you to the point that you were ready to pull the trigger? Yeah, I'm trying to think back exactly like where I was revenue wise. It wasn't that much revenue. I was maybe at like seventy thousand dollars of revenue. But when you when you bring on a team member, you don't have to hire a full time team member. So for her, it was maybe like 10, 15 hours a week, you know, twenty twenty something dollars an hour. So that's not that big of a financial hit for you as you're you're growing your firm. And then you can start with a 30 or 90 day contract. So that way it gives you both the time to test out the waters. So it really doesn't have to be, it really doesn't have to be that, that, that scary. Uh, I mean, when I, when I, when I, when I did hire her, I was scared. I was nervous about like, what if she quits and like files like a wrongful termination suit against me, you know, or I did have like doubts like that, but now that I've done it once, it, it, it really has like lowered my my fear about bringing on new team members. I think you have a powerful point that you know just when you start out with ten hours a week at at twenty something dollars an hour. I mean, you're you're talking about literally like two hundred dollars a week. Like you know, if you hire them for ten hours and they save you two hours, and the two hours lets you do two hours of things with clients, like you doubled your money at two hundred dollars an hour for your time. Like it just it it uh. The time leverage is so powerful for what we can do and be compensated for our our time with clients relative to what it takes to start getting at least or especially the administrative help early on. Yeah, and I would say some things that like it, I know you had Alex Hopkin recently on. Some of the other things that 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 paraplanners can do beyond kind of prepping the financial plan and, and and things like that, like Liz can help you or like I'm calling, I guess I'm bucketing Liz with all paraplanners or CSAs, but like a, a new team member, they can help you with billing. Like I have her sit in on all the, I had her sit in on all the client meetings initially uh, to take notes and just kind of observe. And after meetings, it used to take me an hour and a half, two hours to write up the notes and, and send them out to clients and write up, upload everything to write capital and the CRM and all that. And now it can be as little as 10 minutes after a meeting. I review the notes. Like they're taking notes in the meeting and by the end, they're like, okay, the notes are ready for you to review. You're reviewing them. You're like, okay, it looks good. Liz goes out and you know she, she sends it out to the, to the client. So it, it can just save like a, a ton, a ton of time that you can get back in your day. How do you look at... at- hiring and capacity going forward. You know, you said you like you had basically capped yourself out at 60 something clients. You're not taking more at this point. It's they're going to Liz and now Brandon who you hired. Like what do you what do you think of as capacity for for clients and the kind of model that you're doing where you've got monthly fees, ongoing meetings, your 42 structure, all the stuff that you're doing and tracking and producing in Excel and 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 planning software, or like, how do you think about capacity and hiring, and and when you hire more? Yeah, that's a good question. It's something I'm I'm trying to figure out um, right now. I think a full load for a, a planner with with our model is somewhere between sixty to seventy clients. Like I mentioned, the onboarding process is really really intensive. So for me, I'm not doing any onboarding for new clients now. I'm I'm kind of just shadowing. Brandon, mostly Liz is pretty much working on on her own and only needs help with the most complex uh, clients. And the demand is out there for for services. We so 
like I mentioned, it's, it's just January now. We have a wait list uh, until April to bring on new clients. And we're actually able to bring on five new clients per month. And even with that capacity, we still have to have this this wait list. Like in, in December, but it was like the most clients we signed up in a month. It was eight eight that month. I think we could bring on you know, right now, right now we're actually looking to hire a new lead planner and two client service associates. So for our, our career track, it kind of goes client service associate. Once you pass your CFP and can start being the lead on a, a client and you kind of learn the ballast point way, then you kind of move to an associate. Um, that's where Brandon's at that associate level. And then from there, once you are the lead on maybe about 30 clients, kind of like if you're able to kind of maybe like one way to think about it is like have enough clients to where you're like covering your revenue that or covering the your salary is kind of one way I, I think about it. Like once you're like the lead on like a certain number of clients, then you can be then you're like kind of moving up to a senior planner. So, like I mentioned, I like my vision for the future has evolved for my firm, and I could hire just like one planner, uh, maybe a year or one or two planners a year, and just do it out of cash flow. But you know, since I'm I do want to help more people get into the industry. I'm I'm hiring a little bit ahead of where we're at as as a business. So like last year we made like 400,000 pretty much like dead on. So we don't really have the the resources to hire two three new uh, advisors right now. So what I did was I you know I researched like the whole industry like Live Oak and Oak Street and kind of like trying to raise working capital and for them they didn't want to lend money to you unless you had really good cash flow and had a certain amount of profit margin. And then I was like, well, if I had that profit margin, I would just hire another planner and I wouldn't have this issue. So what I ended the, up doing- The joy of right, the businesses that have a lot of free cash flow uh, can borrow money even though they don't need it. And the business that actually need to borrow money can't get it because they don't already have money. Joy's a bank. <laughs> yeah. They would, they would lend for things like if you were going to buy another firm or merge with another firm, but like in terms of like hiring people to serve more clients, that wasn't something they were interested in. So there, there, are, there are small business loans. So I ended up taking out a $150,000 uh, SBA loan. And when I'm thinking about your question about like capacity and things like that, my goal for that money is to see how quickly can we onboard and train new team members to where they get to the point where they're able to, to serve clients. And, you know, I have like big visions for what Ballast Point can be. One model, you know, I don't, I don't love this analogy, but maybe like, I don't, I don't 100% love this analogy, but like maybe like the next Edward Jones, but the fee only version without the cold knocking and, and for young professionals. The reason I picked Edward Jones is I, I love that they have a national presence and they have a really good training program. I don't love that the, the, the historical kind of transactional nature. So maybe a better analogy would be like, you know, the Starbucks of financial planning, where everyone gets a, a consistent client experience, but again, it's kind of nationwide. So when I'm thinking about growth, I'm like, okay, let's use this 150,000 as, as efficiently as we can, and use that to kind of prove this model, and then reach out to individual investors. And what I'm thinking is independently wealthy investors, maybe financial planners, like or, or previous financial planners that are like wanting to help grow the profession that kind of see the vision and not, not as opposed to like trying to do like a white combinator uh, venture capital trying to like create an app or uh, something like that that's kind of where my head's at and what I'm envisioning right now so it's we're we're kind of experimenting and, and figuring it out as we go so so talk to me a little bit more about just this loan I just don't see a lot of debt financing of advisory firms, particularly for 
hiring. As you noted, like debt for buying someone else, buying someone else's firm is one thing, but using it to staff up for hire. So is someone like who who ultimately wrote the loan? Like were you able to find an industry provider or was it was it someone outside the industry? And just help me understand more you're thinking through like taking on debt and I guess the most basic level, like how do you make back the debt that you've taken on? So it was through the SBA itself. And for the loan that I took out, it was, I think it's a 25 or 30 year repayment. So the monthly servicing cost for that is is really, really low. The interest rate is like 3.75. So when I think about it for my business, um, and I think about it in terms of like the enterprise value of my firm, whatever multiple you want to use, like if it's usually based off of like your recurring revenue, say it's like 2x of your revenue. So like my firm might be worth 800,000 if it's 2x, you're, you're tra- trailing 12 revenue. And so if I can take this and then add capacity and then our our revenue grows to like 600,000 by the end of the year, our recurring revenue. So then our firm goes from 800,000 to you know, like $1.2 million of enterprise value. And I think about the return on that investment, like there's no way, no, no investment that would give you a better return than that. And I know, I know that the demand is out there from the prospect side. I just need to have planners in here to help service them. So uh, that, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Interesting. So, so it sounds like a, a piece of this, a big piece of this for you in particular is just You've got a strong marketing presence between, you know, find an advisor sites, Yelp reviews, existing client base, dense area where there's just a lot of wealth and clients to work with that your comfortable client flow is coming. And so it makes it easier to say, I'm going to take out a loan to hire more advisors because you're literally staring down a wait list of clients right now saying, if I could literally just get them in here faster and get going, like I'm I'm going to make this back almost immediately because I can just literally take new clients faster that are already knocking on my door and their revenue is going to be paying this back. Yeah. And I know it's a little bit different than traditional, what a traditional advisors would do, but it was just like a really cheap source of capital and a good way to kind of, for, yeah, like I said, like kind of test the waters or, or kind of prove this, prove this model. And so then share with us a little bit more. You're, you're talking about then the next stage might actually be, I guess, not going out for debt capital, but going out for equity capital. Help us understand a little more of what you're thinking in terms of you might actually take on like investors who are investing for growth. I mentioned independently wealthy individuals, and I'm not sure what the right financing tool would be. Maybe it's equity or maybe it's convertible debt. So I haven't kind of worked out like kind of what's in it for them. You know, if I'm going to say, hey, you know, I'm going to raise, say it's like $3 million from like four to eight individuals. You know, I'll pay you an interest rate of whatever eight percent or six percent or four percent or whatever the going rate is, and then like what what would get them excited enough to kind of to get on board? Like, is it to get to get to to yeah to, to like make that investment? Would it be maybe to to get on board or like to form a board that where they could uh, have more say in the the direction of the firm or provide uh, mentorship and uh, insight? I guess I haven't quite worked out like what the the carrot would be for them to get them excited to to participate. Um, maybe it would convert to equity in the future. Yeah, so I, I don't quite have that that figured out yet. But the idea is just further accelerating because you see even more growth opportunities and want to hire even more people and just are trying to make this go faster at the end of the day. I mean, I've also thought about maybe trying to build like some internal technology just to help with our processes. Right now we use 33 different 
33 different like point solutions. Like when you look at all of our tech stack, just to make things more integrated for the client experience and also with the onboarding and just with our with our team members and all that. So I was I have thought about maybe creating a platform to help advisors to, to help me be more efficient. Excuse me, to make me more efficient and then also make it easier to kind of onboard and, and train newer advisors and kind of help them serve their clients more efficiently. So I've thought about doing like maybe like a middle office tool internally for for advisors. So I like I'm just my brain is trying to wrap around 33 different tech solutions. I guess I, I don't know that I can ask you to name all 33 because that's just a, a lot of a lot of technology even to keep track of. Like what I guess what what at least are the anchor tools that you're using for the technology stack and 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 just help me understand where some of the gaps are from the anchor tools that you use. Yeah. So you know the the CRM we use uh, Wealthbox our portal. Uh, we use Dropbox. I like that better than, than Right Capitals uh, for financial planning and kind of data aggregation. We're using Right Capital. We we do a lot of planning in Excel. Just I I like tracking someone's progress with their net worth over time. And there's not really a good tool out there because the links break all the time to kind of track someone's net worth. And I don't want to have to like kind of ping my client every time the, the link breaks. Uh, so I guess in my like vision you know, I've taken demos of the the FinLife uh, through Goldman Sachs. I've, I've actually, I was actually a client of Facet Wealth. I kind of I really like what they're doing, and kind of having just like a like a like a dashboard that like you've got the vault, you've got a lot of like workflows and stuff, like like a better a better client dashboard. Even even just keeping track of uh, to do items for clients is tricky, and getting them to give us progress updates on their to-do items. Like we put everything in right capital, but they can't really comment on on their progress. So we have to dump all of their action items from right capital into a Google sheet and then send that to them before their meeting and say, hey, where are you guys at the sta- on the status with these these homework items? So it's kind of all, all of those things. You know, we, there, there's Betterment. We use Boxcryptor to encrypt all the files that are in Dropbox. And when I say 33, I'm, I'm also counting like kind of the whole Google suite, like Google Forms, Google Sheets. Sure. Uh, I mean, those are all things that you're like weaving together in practice if if everything's trying to talk to everything else. Yeah, and like zappier to try and get things to talk to each other. It's yeah, it's it's crazy. So, you also mentioned earlier, I wanted to come back to this that you were like you were experimenting with bundling tax returns in, which you know, we've actually talked about on a few recent episodes of the podcast. Like I'm I'm hearing this cropping up more and more amongst the advisor community. So what's what's led you to bring tax planning internally and then what's working or not working and trying to actually do it and deliver it for clients? So this goes back to my initial concern about having clients stick around. Um, I That wasn't as a big a concern for me lately. In 2019, my retention rate was 97%, which is really, really good. The last year in 2020, it was 80%. 18 clients left uh, due to, due to COVID and just graduating of normal, normal, uh, just kind of they're ready to move on. So the idea for tax services in house was I wanted to create to increase the stickiness of the client relationship. If we're doing financial planning, investments, and and taxes, I thought that that would just you know add additional value. So I think I've hired three different 
tax professionals to try trying different ways to get them to 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 like maybe it was like a someone who was a CPA who was interested in financial planning trying to teach them the financial planning side and then they they would do the taxes for our clients. I've tried three different ways to try and bring it in house where they were um, working part time and just for whatever reason it just it just ended up not working out. I learned a ton about running a, a tax practice and and I'm actually licensed to. I have an EFIN and a PTIN, so I can actually file taxes for my clients, like personally, like using um, Intuit ProConnect. But I don't feel comfortable doing it. Like I don't like. There's just so much I don't know about the the systems. So that was the original idea. In, in practice, what I've learned is that it's really hard to do it. To, what I mean by do it is is to to hire someone to come into your firm to do it, like maybe on a part time basis. So if I were going to try and bring it in house again in the future. It would be if I hired someone that was going to be full time working for Ballast Point, and and you know, kind of, I was their only employer. So where we're at right now is um, we use Inspired Tax Solutions. Uh, that's Rob Cologne. He and his sister Dana had a firm for a while, and then Dana's doing the financial. They 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 had like joined forces to do like financial planning and tax, and now they've kind of split companies. And so Dana's doing the financial planning, and Rob's running the taxes. And so I partnered with Rob, so he's going to do all the taxes for my clients. And then when it's ready, at the, like when it's ready, he'll send a draft to me and the client. And so that's that's kind of where we're at right now. And then for the ones that are the comprehensive clients where we're paying for their tax returns, I'm going to pay Rob directly for those for those taxes. And so and so it sounds like your inclination at least is like you you would rather send this out than than bring it in at this point. Yeah. This this last year was super challenging. I hired a CPA, um, was trying to vet her out. So by last year, I mean like uh, uh, I guess the 2019 tax year. So starting in, in you know early 2020, I hired her to do taxes for us. We were going to split the revenue, kind of 50 50, and it was. I th- I think I overestimated her ability, and I think she underestimated how long it would take to do the returns and how complex our clients are, and so it just wasn't a good fit. We had co- we had committed to doing sixty five returns, and then she quit on April fifteenth after only filing four returns uh, for my clients, and one of those yeah, had. Oh, that's not pleasant at all. That's yeah, yeah so that's not good. That was, and then like one of them we had to file an amendment for. So then I was scrambling. And you know, tax season got extended last year to to July, so it was just a never-ending tax season uh, for me. So it's also hard because clients they're used to paying not not a ton to do taxes, and and maybe paying like three four hundred dollars a year for a return, so they don't really value it that much. It's not like a something a core competency. So I, I think I would do it as like uh, maybe like not like the loss leader, but but. Kind of at least to just break even with the idea that it'll help with client retention. If in the future, if I do want to try and bring it back in house, but for now, I'm I'm outsourcing it and I'm just going to kind of do a review when it's ready. But in the outsourcing context, like you're still positioning the clients, we do tax, like we do your tax return here as part of our fee. You're just working with someone behind the scenes. I guess I can think of like it's like a subcontractor relationship for them to actually do the tax return work behind the scenes so that you're not personally buried in tax season, but you can still say the firm has brought this solution as opposed to just referring the client directly to them and not being part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess also means you you effectively pay their 
tax prep fees directly to Inspired from from your end, since it was already part of your fee, you're writing the check to to Inspired and the client comes through you for it? So for the comprehensive clients, I mentioned there's like about 20 of them. That's how it'll work. Like I'll pay Rob directly for those 20. But then for the majority of the clients, maybe like 60 or 70, they're going to pay Rob directly. They're going to use his dashboard, his tax planning software, his uh, data gathering tool. Okay. Because they haven't because they haven't bought up to the the comprehensive full package. So as you're looking at this, I guess it sounds like it's it's been a bit, a bit up and down in and just getting through it and getting it implemented because of some of the prior woes. But like you've been trying to implement this for clients with clients for a while. Are are you finding it impacts retention rate? Like, is it making them stickier? Do you see more retention of the ones who stayed last year that were doing tax preparation with you versus the rest? Like, how are you feeling about it now that you've done it for a while? Uh, I haven't like tracked like, I think what clients really want is they want tax advice. They don't really care who's doing the, the return at the end of the day. So we we do a ton of tax planning and BNA tax tools. And I think that that has uh, increased retention. I have noticed the ones that have, you know, like I put it in quotes, like gra- graduated. They didn't necessarily like open accounts at Betterment. They might've just kind of kept their accounts at Vanguard or they were kind of maybe more arm's length engaged with us, kind of like looking back at kind of what they engaged with us on. So I think there's there's some something to be said there. Interesting. So you're feeling it in practice, like it's it's the tax advice and the additional tax planning that comes around the tax preparation that may add value or get them more engaged and sticky. Not not literally, we did the tax return, but I guess the caveat. But it is easier to do some of the tax advice when you're doing the return in house. Yeah, and the, a big selling point is having like the left hand talk to the right hand. So like your financial planner really in, engaged with your tax situation throughout the year, and then being able to like look at the tax return and make sure everything's incorporated correctly. And so like another kind of manual process that we're we're we're, we're we're keeping track of is we have a, a tax tracker tab in that big Excel file. So we're keeping track of things that happen throughout the year to make sure it gets reflected on their return, like 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 someone who exercised stock or um, they did their backdoor Roth or had a baby or kind of all the all the ta- events that have a tax impact or like moving to a different state, switching jobs, make sure they're not over contributing to their 401k. So all that stuff gets put into that tax tracker. So when we are reviewing the return, we kind of pull that up and, and make sure all of that stuff is incorporated into their 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 return. And in the end you just find it easier to capture that stuff in in the in the Excel sheets as opposed to like putting it in CRM and using CRM as your reminder notes on on uh, in areas like that. Yeah, perhaps there's a way to track it better in in the CRM um, and like tag it as a track tax activity. Um, but that, that's where we're that's where we're we're tracking it right now. And is this also just for the Excel document that you're talking about, is is this something that actually gets shared out to clients? Like is this part of a collaborative document with clients or or is this simply a a thing you use internally to keep track of all the different clients and what's going on and tax tracker value added, net worth and so forth? We mostly just use it internally, but when we are prepping for the upcoming meeting, um, we'll dump some of the tables into a Google sheet. So again, this is like all the logistic or yeah, logistical stuff that I'd love to kind of clean up one day. So for example, for 
some of the some of the accounts are linked in Right Capital, or we have access to Betterment. So we're trying to update their balance sheet, and so we'll 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 put we'll update it with all the cells that we have access to, but we'll highlight in yellow the things that we need them to update before their next meeting, and we'll send that over in a Google Sheet so they can update it live. So it's been kind of hard to maintain kind of figure out version control in that sense. If we're updating their spending plan, that might be a tab that we'll send over. Uh, we also do like a 12-month cash flow projection. Actually, I don't think we share that one with clients, but that's another one thing that that we help with clients uh, with just kind of, it's a good data visualization tool to see their cash flow uh, over the next 12 months of when is their stock going to hit or when's their property tax due. Again, that's another, some, another kind of manual thing that we kind of ha- have created for our clients. So as you look at this model overall, you know, I know there's a lot of discussion debate out there just in general around AUM models versus retainer models and and in particular what this does to retention rates, right? For better or worse, just having a client's life savings under your purview kind of seems to make them sticky, right? And just if we look at industry numbers, like retention rates in the AUM model is really high for AUM firms and even sort of surprisingly high sometimes for not very good AUM firms because clients just seem to get a little bit of inertia around once dollars are parked somewhere. So so I am curious, like you it sounds like you've had a wide range of retention rates. Like you were at 97% in 2019, you said only 80% last year. Some of that's COVID rippling through, which I'm sure is harder when you've got a younger clientele that were more directly impacted by you know job changes and economic impacts. But how how do you think about like client retention rates? And you've even mentioned that some clients graduate. I don't know if that's sort of a, a euphemism or that you truly envision like a segment of clients is just going to graduate because that's what happens when you work with younger clients. Sometimes they move on to different stages of life and different needs. How do you think about retention of your firm in the long run? That'd be Something interesting, I hope you guys could weave into the benchmarking studies you do at XYPN for for firms that don't charge AUM. I think it just my gut is kind of telling me that like it might be around like 90% retention might be the normal for a model like mine. And you know, maybe maybe I need maybe I need to redefine like kind of what what we are as opposed to like a financial wealth management company. Like maybe it's we're maybe a kind of like education company where you know graduation is kind of like you've learned how to do this and you kind of graduate to do it on your own so yeah i don't know i mean i guess the the flip side like it's not as though it's stopping you from growing at least for for where you are like you you're still running five plus new clients a month and waiting lists of clients and hiring and taking on debt to hire faster so i i don't know if that's part of the trade-off process as well of of you know the bad news of clients turning over more in this model or working with younger clients is the higher turnover the good news is that also tends to mean there's more clients in play so you, your new client may be someone else's client that moved away from them because it didn't work for them and that's what brought them for you brought them to you that is it just the reality is maybe there's a higher uh, volume and flow of clients like coming in and going yeah, I would say also we do charge like the upfront fee. So I, I think that's I think that's important to note. So that way um, we are getting compensated for our time for that initial kind of that that heavy lifting in those first few months. So I do keep track of how much hours we put towards our clients and you know the amount of revenue that they're bringing in and the expenses associated with that. So I think for my model, 
I think charging the upfront fee makes sense and having a, a, a significant amount upfront due helps helps us if, if they do end up graduating. Well, I mean, you'd mentioned like a, I think it was five hundred or thousand dollars upfront for singles, one to two thousand dollars upfront for for married couples, and and then they go to month to month. Like, is that the upfront you're talking about here, or are you talking about or looking at front loading their fees even more just for protecting you if they if they come and leave relatively quickly? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the the first the first point. So how how it works is you know um, the upfront fee is kind of like their they it's typically it's like fifteen hundred dollars for a couple. They pay seven fifty and they sign the client agreement and then they're they're a client. Once they have their first of those three meetings, their monthly fee starts. And so that's when like that three thirty three starts. And then their second half of that initial fee is due after their second client meeting. So in the first year, they're they're really paying more like fifty five hundred and then it tears down to to four thousand uh, per year. And is that for you that helps to cover the the additional time of of the work of having them come on board in the first year and then just you have to maintain a certain number of new clients coming in just to keep the the flow and volume in place to make the make the growth happen in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. And we're finding between like two to three clients per advisor per month is about like a sustainable rate at this point. So you can take on five new clients because any individual lead advisor can take on two or three new clients in a month beyond that. And just there's too much upfront and onboarding work and initial plans and the rest to make it manageable given existing clients you got to service as well. So as you kind of look back over just the, the past couple of years now of building this, like what surprised you the most about building your own advisory firm? Yeah, I think when I when I started my own firm, I think I had like really low self-confidence. I had a CFP. I had tried to find my way into this profession and just hadn't found a good fit. And then my wife, she had a good job here in the Bay Area. So it was a time to kind of take a chance on myself. So, you know, I've always had kind of big dreams, but like I, I didn't have I don't know. I also had never been like a lead planner before. So to 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 launch the firm, uh, I was really nervous, really anxious. So I think kind of what surprised me the most is that, you know, I was able to find success in getting people to getting clients to sign up and 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 seeing the demand that's out there. It's been really rewarding. And I think also what's kind of surprised me is how much your own personal views on finances come through. Like when I mentioned we review someone's credit report, that's something that I would want in, in an advisor. And I don't think not necessarily everyone gets into credit reports and what credit card are you using or uh, getting to the level of detail of what beneficiaries you're using or, or just even the softer stuff of like, should I take this job with a startup or I don't know. It's kind of like your own personal views really influence your recommendations to your clients. And it's kind of where you're at in your own personal journey really impacts where you, the advice that you, you provide. Oh, yeah. It's always struck me that just so many advisory firms at the end of the day basically end up working with people people like themselves plus or minus 10 years or so S- similar age similar life stage often similar backgrounds and circumstances and, and I think part of it is is just it's that it's this combination of you know we, we tend to build better rapport with people who are similar to us we can connect with them you know we build our firms based on what we think is important and so 
sort of no great surprise. Like if you build on what you think is important, you tend to attract clients that are similar to you and therefore prioritize those things in similar ways. And like, there's no right and wrong about it. Just like that's part of what makes it work, right? That we build the things that we think are important and we attract other people who are similar to us who similarly believe that's important. And they're therefore willing to pay us to be their financial advisor to, to do that for them. So, so how did you, I, I am curious though, just the challenge for so many advisors, I think getting started is really is kind of that confidence issue and just getting comfortable with launching and convincing clients to pay you and convincing clients to work with you and charging what you're worth and you know not over-servicing clients, although virtually all of us do it early on. Were there, I guess, breakthroughs or transition points for you of, of how did you get to the point that you were comfortable enough to do it? And make it work, even though, as you said, you didn't have a lot of direct client experience being a lead advisor or growing a client base, you kind of leapt into it. A couple of things. When before I launched my firm, I was working at Personal Capital. And one of my one of the things I would do there is kind of some lunch and learn activities or lunch and learn sessions for go so go to companies and like kind of present just some personal finance tips. And I was co-presenting with with another person at Personal Capital. And someone asked a question and then she answered it and then I answered it. And it was just like an aha moment of like, I, I don't know, I, I know this stuff and and maybe we don't have the same recommendation or advice, but like we each have an opinion on it and each is equally valid. And that was, yeah, that was, uh, that was like an inflection point for me. And then the other thing, you know, I, I would recommend is I was like really, really prepared. Um, I, I did a lot of business planning, uh, like in terms of like creating a business plan itself uh, and making sure I had the financial wherewithal to do this, to, to give it a, a, a shot. Like I would recommend having at least three years of financial runway for your firm. And then another thing I did, which I would recommend to anyone that's thinking about starting a firm is write down 10 ideal clients, like from, from like, your network of people who you'd love to work with and then survey them and do some informational interviews and say, Hey, I'm thinking about starting this firm. What are some of the financial pain points that you're facing? What do you think about this business idea? Uh, is this something you'd be willing to pay for? I did that with 10 of my friends and one of them eventually became a client, but like there was no expectation of there. So kind of doing all those things. I mean, it was scary. Like I, it, I think it was until maybe month I guess four or five that I was like, okay, this is going to work. I signed up pretty early on to do a money quotient training and four to five months after launching my firm, I signed up to do their training and it's like a pretty intensive two or three day training. And in the evening I met with a prospect and like kind of pitched them like to work together. And I was using some of the tools from the training and then they, they ended up becoming a client. And I think it was kind of at that point where I was like, okay, this, this is going to work. Oh, like this stuff works. Hey. <laughs> yeah. I meant like the, the tools that they're teaching and then also that this business model is going to work and that I will get enough people. So, you know, it, it didn't happen for a while until I felt like th this business is going to work. So what was the, what was the low point on the journey for you? Yeah, I think um, back to when I earned my CFP in 2000. 2010, early 2010, my wife was in business school. We moved to San Diego. I was trying to find a job in San Diego. And, and I, I thought like I had like kind of found like my dream job with a fee only RIA. And their minimum though was, was $2 million. And I just, it just, I didn't really felt like, feel like I've, 
I don't know. It just didn't really work out for me there. They had been around for like 25 years. They served about 250 families and the minimum was 2 million bucks. So they're, 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 they had maybe like 400 million of assets under management, but their typical client was like 55, 65. But I wanted to serve people that were more in my peer group. So I decided to go to business school you know, take the GMAT and study and uh, apply. And, and part of the application is you you ask for letters of recommendation. And, you know, I wanted to be upfront. And, you know, I told my boss about about applying and if he'd write a letter of recommendation. And maybe I was naive to, to think he wouldn't like tell other people at the company, but like just kind of being in alignment with my values, I wanted to like let him know. And so he told like the other team members pretty much uh, really quickly and I hadn't even applied to business school yet. And so this is in the fall where you're kind of submitting applications. And already things weren't going that well at that firm. And and then once they knew I was going to business school, they started taking away responsibilities from me. And that was just really hard to see. Like colleagues were going to conferences in other cities. And I hadn't even applied to school. And I was I was and like they ultimately they asked me to leave before I even wanted to. And it, that was like a really low point where I was you know, I wasn't really happy with my performance at the company. And yeah, I just, I, it was just, it was just a really, really difficult time. I, I, that was when I was like, is this really the profession for me? Or, you know, I've, I've kind of had that doubt a couple of times throughout my career. So, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering like what, what led you to stay and, and like in the, in the industry and still say like, I, I do think this is the industry for me and I'm, I'm going to stay even though I've, I've just had this challenging experience. I guess the impetus for for business school for me was I wanted to make a bigger impact on people's lives, and we like I mentioned they had 250 families, but they were all like really high net worth, and I felt like they had like won the game. Like when you kind of get to that point in your 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 life where you've got like this nest egg, and you kind of just just help people figure out like how they're not going to run out of money. But I wanted to help people that were more like me and kind of kind of starting their careers and growing their careers, um, and my my, you know, kind of my dream was to basically start like a personal capital to leverage technology and and personal advice. You know, I was pursuing that through business school, and yeah, so I think it was, you know, kind of kind of keeping that that, that dream going, and and now I'm able to affect the lives of of, of my clients and and hire, hiring planners that can help their their clients or you know the clients of Ballast Point. So yeah, it was it was it's been a journey. So in, in in retrospect, would you have done some of that differently in how you handled the the conversations at the firm? Or is it just one of those unfortunate things that happens in life? Yeah, you know, I you gotta be like true to yourself and your values. And I, I wouldn't I'm not the type of person that would just like a resignation letter or, you know, like two weeks before I'm gonna leave for school to like say, Hey, I'm out of here. Yeah, I I don't know. That was that was just really hard. I, I try not to like have live with regrets, but yeah, so I don't think I would necessarily have done anything different. As you look back over the past couple of years though, of of kind of as as you've been building the firm, like what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from five years ago when you were getting ready to launch? What do you know now that you wish you knew back then? Yeah, I guess I was kind of thinking about this question of like getting getting ready to launch, like how to how to prepare yourself uh, uh, for, for the launch. So, like I mentioned, like kind of having the the three years of of capital, and then the other thing, I I really like what what you've said in previous podcasts, and I just wanted to echo it here that 
you, you do need to have certain work experience before you go out and start your own firm. And, you know, I was really nervous about not being a lead planner. And I like what I like when you say like, you know, it typically takes like three jobs before you kind of find your, your spot in the industry. So when I, when I talk to people that are wanting to start their own firm, I always recommend that they work at least three years at a firm that's doing real financial planning. So I, I think I would kind of, I just wanted to kind of echo that out there into the universe uh, of like, you don't have to find the perfect job out of college. You know, I've had some, some, some companies that I, that really did not do financial planning, but I still learned a ton. So, Oh, I like, I think I like the, I like the phrase uh, grow where you're planted. You know, if I could go back and tell my younger self that like, I would have kind of really tried to do a better job at that one firm that didn't work out. I like that grow where you're planted. So any other advice you would give for, younger or newer advisors coming into the industry? I think when you're first kind of starting out, you know, another phrase I like is your, your network is your net worth kind of starting out. So getting involved in the financial planning community, networking with other advisors, and don't be afraid to put yourself out there and reach out and like do cold emails to advisors and, and kind of pick their brains about how they've been successful. It is hard to get started in this industry. So don't, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and, and, and get to know people. We've all had people help, help us out. So it's a very giving uh, profession that we, we're, we're open to giving our time. What comes next for you? Like what else are you working on right now? Yeah. So one thing I'm excited that I'm working on is the BLX internship. This is something I've rolled out with Emlyn Miles Mattingly, Chloe Moore, Luis Rosa, and we're providing internship opportunities to aspiring financial planners, uh, both students and career changers that, that identify as Black or Latinx, and they want to work at a fee-only firm. So we're shooting to land at least to, to, to match 100 internships for this upcoming summer. Right now, actually today is the deadline to apply. So once this drops, it'll probably have passed. We're going to be doing this um, for five years. So if you're interested in, in hosting an intern or uh, applying in the future, we, we have a newsletter on our website that you can sign up for. The website's blxinternship.org. And yeah, I'm happy to talk more about that. Um, it, it's like I've mentioned- Just this. Like where did this come from? What's the what's the vision for it? Yeah, so it was actually I was inspired when I was listening to a podcast that you were when you were interviewing Emlyn. So uh, George Floyd died in, in May. There was the you know there was such you know kind of anger and frustration and you know the Black Lives Matter movement and you know as a as a white dude I'm like I've, I've wanted to do something for a long time and I just didn't know what and sometimes I feel like kind of paralyzed and like, I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And then when I heard him on your podcast, you know, we mentioned that, or you guys mentioned that there was, you know, only like 3% black and Latinx uh, certified financial planners, but there's 31% in the U S that, that make up that, that demographic, but the, the, the dispersion, this distribution of wealth kind of matches that 3% number. So, you know, the majority of wealth is controlled by white people that really like hit me in the stomach. I, I exactly remember where I was when I listened to that podcast and like I was running and I was like, I got to do something about this. So I reached out to Emlyn and I was like, Hey, my original idea was let's, I was going to ask Emlyn if he knows any minority aspiring financial planners. And I would do an internship for them this summer as like, just like a one-off. And then as we were talking, we were like, what if we rolled this out to the broader industry? 
like I mentioned in the past, like I had a really hard time getting started in this industry. And I, you know, there's a lot of demand out there for for people that want to get in. Like I feel like there's just people dying to get in. And then as I learned more about Emlyn and my other co-founders, I kind of have a chip on my shoulder about like how it's hard. You know, you've got your war story about like how you got started like selling insurance. And then when I learned about their stories, it's 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 like nothing compared to that. Like like for Emlyn, his his he grew up in a single parent household, and then when he was he was a young man, he, his mom overdosed on drugs and and died. And then Luis he moved here from the Dominican Republic uh, when he was a child, and like he was living in New York City, and there was ten people in a one bedroom apartment, and you know that's the environment that he grew up in. And, and Chloe was raised by like pretty much by her by her grandma, and you know it's it's like. I don't know. It, it, I, I was like, it was like a kind of like a calling once I kind of have kind of like learned about that and just got me inspired to, to, to want to provide opportunities for, for those groups. And, and so how does the, just the program itself work, I guess, for at least for, for those who may be interested in the future, either as firms to be involved or just as advisors of color or future advisors of color who want to be finding an internship, how, how does this actually work? Like, what is the the BLX internship program itself. Yeah, so I've had maybe four internships just to get into into financial planning. My first one was with Merrill Lynch and I was cold calling the whole time. So we want it to be a really great experience for the interns and we want the firms to have a really good experience as well. So we are narrowing it to fee only financial planning firms because that's what all of our co-founders are, that's the future that we believe uh, the profession is moving towards. Um, that's the, the, the direction that we want to build towards. So to, to participate at the firm level, you have to be fee only. Uh, you have to commit to at least an eight-week program, at least, I think we said 15 hours a week and to pay at, at least $15 an hour. So it's really important that it's a paid internship. And then for the students or career changers, you have to at least be a junior in college or or have graduated from college. An interest in in personal finance, you have to be able to to work those like fifteen hours a week and commit to at least eight weeks. And our hope is that they'll get exposure to the industry, that it is a welcoming place, that they can thrive here. And you know, there's that phrase, "You can't be what you can't see." And to see themselves, maybe they're working for a firm that's predominantly white, but maybe they could visualize themselves sitting in that that lead chair or maybe in the operations role. So those are some of the things that, that we'll, they'll get at. And then also we'll provide training along the way of like, this is how to set yourself up for success in the Very internship. Cool. Very cool. So so as we wrap up, this is a, a, a podcast about success. And you know one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means different things to different people. And, and so you're you're on this incredible growth path with the firm of hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue after a couple of years and multiple team members and, and, you know, even taking on loans just to hire faster and grow faster. So the business is going well, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, I knew this question was coming and I've been wrestling with it. You know, it's hard for me. I don't, I don't feel successful. Like I feel like I've had some successes, but I don't like feel like, like overwhelmed, like, with success right now. And it's hard for me to kind of even articulate that, but what I, what I am hoping to achieve um, with my contribution to the profession and the industry is, you know, I want to help, help move the profession forward, help provide pathways into the profession, uh, help make the profession a profession. You know, I think, 
you know, this is me kind of standing on my soapbox a little bit, but you know, I think our profession can be pretty exclusionary, kind of elitist. Like you have to either have a certain amount of asset center management or a certain amount of cash flow so you can afford our fees. You know, I've heard that phrase, or I like saying the phrase, you know, comprehensive financial planning right now is a luxury good. Only the wealthy or high high income earners can afford it. So for for me, success, you know, I want to put this out there in the world. Maybe, you know, I think it might be a good rallying cry for like the CFP or the FPA. You know, what if success as an industry meant a financial planner in every home or access to a financial planner if you want it? You know, there's been studies that show like, you know, 50% of people are like self-directed. They'll never hire a financial planner. But but for like the people that are validators or, or, or delegators, like to have access to financial planning. So if I can kind of help move the direction of the industry and the profession that way, that's something that, you know, I would really feel good about. And, and that's something that I'm, I'm striving towards. Very cool. Very cool. I, I love the the journey of it that you're on so far and, you know, the accelerating hiring growth pace of working with clients that still at the end of the day don't meet AUM minimums and would have trouble finding advisors at most other firms. I think you're you're on a pretty amazing track for it already. Yeah, thank you. And, the, and to kind of expand a little bit on the BLX internship, my maybe like gut or just intuition is that like i you know you mentioned like people work with people that are you know kind of look like them and you kind of 10 years plus or minus i think there's a innate human desire to work with people that are like you or and help support your community so that's another reason i want to try and bring more advisors of color into the profession it's crazy the stat that it jumps out at me is 73% of cfps are white males so it's not white or male. It's like 73% are white and male. So of the remaining 27%, that's all the minorities, all the women, you know, everything. So to just provide, you know, more opportunities for diverse populations, I think we'll just I like I don't have the answers for, you know, the service model, but that's that's what I'm trying to build towards is to just to provide more pathways and and more access to people. Oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Now, thank you, Michael. And thank you for everything you do uh, for our industry. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.